In this episode, I spoke to Craig Stanland for the second time. Uh, Craig has recently released a book called Blank Canvas, Reinventing My Life After Prison. Uh, highly suggested reading. Uh, follow him on Instagram and LinkedIn, uh, and also check out his website. He's got a lot of valuable content on there. In the podcast, we spoke a lot about personal development, um, the development of consciousness, uh, very deep into emotions and writing as well. Now, he's an avid writer. We spoke about language and the origins of language and the etymology of language. Very interesting conversation. Really enjoyed talking to him again. Please, as I said, check out his social media platforms. Enjoy the episode. Craig Stanland, thank you for joining me again. It's been about 18 months since we last spoke. A lot's gone on. Uh, we've both been on our own personal journeys on that time. Uh, tell me, how are you getting on, buddy? It's good to speak to you again. Alex, it's amazing to speak to you again. Um, I love uh, following you on social media and everything that you're up to, and I think we've got a lot of catching up to do. On mm. my end, I mean, just a lot has happened since we've spoken, and life is really good you know i'm at that point and i'm sure we're going to get into this just like all of the all of the work all of the commitment all of those things that i've been working on they're bubbling to the surface and they're coming to fruition and that is just something that's so unbelievably rewarding you know in those moments of of complete doubt and fear of you know am i going down the right path why am i why am I doing the work that I'm doing when I know how difficult it is? And staying true to that all the way through and seeing it come to life is extraordinary. You know, and I think it's just a journey. It's, 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 it's about the journey and not the destination, not to be cliche, right. but there's so much value in that. 100%, 100%. And you've had a book come out, Blank Canvas, I believe. Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. That was released on May 25th of 2021. That was the culmination of, that's like a perfect example of what I'm talking about. That was the culmination of six years of doubt and fear and imposter syndrome and all of the crap that goes along with it and releasing that to the world. I, I'll tell you, man, um, holding that book in my hands for the first time when the publisher sent me my 50 copies it was one of the most emotional experiences of my entire life. It was shame, guilt, embarrassment, every what we would maybe call negative emotion, along with joy and fulfillment and meaning and passion and purpose, all flushed in in like a 20-second time period. It was, I mean, one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had. Wow. But you know what? I can understand that because that seems to me like a conglomeration of every single life experience that you've ever had. You've, you've got it out of storage and you've put it into something. And when you see that physical copy, I can imagine that to be, wow, that's really overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. Um, you know, I, record, I recorded it because it's actually really good um, content for promotion. Of yeah. But yeah. I, I, I actually I had to fight back tears. You know, I mean, it was, I had to fight back tears and it just, to, like you said, to hold it, the, mm. the, 
physical manifestation of six years of mental work. It was, my brain had a hard time wrapping around it. But once it did, it was just like, wow, it's real. And then the next, in a sense, hurdle came of, holy cow, it's going out to the world. You know, it's not just, it, this thing is real, but it's going out to the world. And I opened myself up to some of my biggest fears. Mm. going to get judged. People are going to say it sucks. You know, terrible writing. You know, all these, all the, all the fears that went along through six years. Mm. It's like, wow, you know, I'm, 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 once, once a book is out there, it's no longer yours. It belongs to the world. And that's a very strange concept to think about. Yeah. I think it takes quite a developed human, a developed uh, mind or ego to be vulnerable enough to actually release that into the world. A lot of people are scared to put stuff out because of the fear of judgment, the fear of not being good enough, the fear of not being worthy enough, all this stuff that gets believed by by our minds. So I tap my hat off to you, buddy, because I do a lot of writing online in the form of articles and stuff. But to put a book together and then put it out on Amazon and wherever else, it must take a hell of a lot of courage. So kudos to you for that. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I'll tell you, one of the... I, so I started writing when I was in prison. I started writing in the library of the Otisville Federal Prison. And I was writing about stuff that had only just occurred, getting arrested by the FBI, my wife telling me that she's leaving me, mm. things that were, the wounds were still very open. And writing this stuff was the equivalent of pouring bleach into those wounds. It stung like hell. And I remember sitting in that library going, why am I doing this? This is causing me so much pain and angst. I'm already in prison. Why am I torturing myself like this? It's impossible to get a book published. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Nobody's going to read this. And I remember I threw my pen in disgust. I was just like, why am I doing this? And I'll tell you, my heart spoke. Mm. And I flipped the page of my journal. I picked up the pen that I had just thrown. And I wrote the answer down. And it said, to help one person. And it felt so true and so good that I flipped back to my page where I was writing that was causing me frustration. And I, and I continued the process. And to help one person, that was the fuel yeah. that drove me for those, those six years and brought me to that point of releasing it. I said, because you know, if, I, if I'm not vulnerable, if I'm not transparent, and if I don't release it, how am I ever going to reach that one person? And so that was mm. really, that was, that was the crux of it. Mm. Mm. And you do a lot of coaching on the side as well now. Obviously, you've got your book, you do coaching. Is that sort of your mission in life at this point? It is, absolutely. It is, it's a three-pronged approach, and they're all interwoven. So it is speaking, coaching, and writing. I'm working on the <laughs> second book right now. And, you know, all of the messaging across all three of those is the same. So they work in unison with each other and they're wickedly independent of each other. Right. But it makes yeah. it really powerful and cohesive mm. in my own mind. And in the coaching, I call myself a reinvention architect. And what I do is really help people reinvent themselves and their lives because that's something I had to do after losing everything and going to prison and being suicidal. 
Let's touch on that. Let's touch on that. So reinvent yourself. Uh, I remember talking about this in the first conversation. Anyone who wants to go and listen to that, June 2020, that was released. Uh, reinventing yourself. Does that mean to you uh, creating a new self-identity and a self-image? Or does that mean to you the complete destruction of identity to allow uh, could we word it life to sort of use you as a vessel for goodness? I would, I would agree with both of those, but reinvention to me is mm. the connecting with our deep intrinsic calling to a sense of meaning and take, taking a lined intentional action to cultivate that meaning. And that can look like a lot of different things. Your two examples could very well be that. But it is, I really, I believe um, very much, you know, I mean, I, I was so inspired by Victor, Victor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, but we have a will to meaning. We want our lives to mean something. And for me, reinvention is connecting with that meaning and taking action towards it. Mm. And whatever that looks like for the individual, it's as, as unique as we are. Somebody wants to be a painter. Somebody wants to yeah. be a writer. Somebody wants to launch a business, but they don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, and they're, my clients are very much stuck on autopilot. They do what they have always done. They follow the shoulds and expectations of others. And they just have, oftentimes they're very successful and they have a success-sized hole in the middle of their chest because there's, there's, they're, they're going down the wrong path. Yeah, I understand that, man. I've been there myself. You climb the tallest tree that you can find, and then you look around and you realize you're in the wrong jungle. You need a different jungle. I completely understand what that is. Who are you finding is your main like client at the moment? Because I've seen in the last couple of years, even in the UK, coaching has sort of got in a, a bigger industry. I think a lot of people have looked outside of themselves uh, or, or looked at an uh, alternative um, approach to self-development rather than just devouring books they've actually looked for coaches I've seen the industry grow in the last couple of years throughout the COVID thing um, who are you finding are your main like attractors at the moment who's coming towards you it, I find it very interesting that I have two very distinct set of clients mm. uh, first set is people who have gone through the justice system uh, they've either been arrested and gone to prison, arrested and given probation, but life knocked them off their treadmill. <laughs> and so it is people who I can relate to very specifically because I've been where they are. And so I find those sets of folks. And then the other set is what I would call pre-choice, Craig, before I made the choice to commit fraud against one of the largest technology companies in the world. Mm -hmm. I was massively successful. I climbed that tree and I looked out and I was on, on, in the wrong jungle. And I chased, you know, all the pleasure and power to try to find meaning. And it was just a very empty road to go down. And so, you know, my other set of clients is those, they're these successful high achievers who climbed the wrong tree, got to the top and realized all the things that they were promised you know, the happiness and the joy weren't there. They're not there. And I'm not saying that they are going to go out and commit crime, but they are, they're looking for meaning in anything. And it can be Netflix, yeah. it could be addictions, it could be affairs. 
you know, buying everything under the sun through materialism or chasing that next rung on the corporate ladder. Yeah. And every time they get there, they, again, are disappointed because there's nothing, everything that they thought was going to be waiting for them isn't there. Yeah. Yeah, completely understand that. Do you consider meaning then, because you've used that word a, a few times here, do you consider meaning as man's highest purpose? I do. I absolutely do. Do you I, think I that's inherent within their nature? It's not something that's given to them. I do. I think that it is intrinsic to our human existence to have that will to meaning. And I think that we we cultivate that meaning. I also believe that all of us have a calling. You know, we uh, Robert Greene calls it, I think, our life's task. You know, from The Alchemist, it's our personal legend. Whatever we want to call it, I like calling it a calling. And it can be something massive and world-changing, or it could just be something that we enjoy for ourselves. And the more that we ignore that calling, the more we're moving away from ourselves and we're moving away from meaning. So we start actually listening to that calling and taking that aligned intentional action towards it, that's how I believe we cultivate meaning. And to you, in your life now, meaning would be the giving of your uh, voice, of your writing, uh, in order to begin cultivating that in others. Would that be correct? That is correct. Nailed it. Well said. Perfectly said. I might have to come back and actually borrow that in my context. That's more, you're more than welcome. More than welcome. Um, see, what... What role do you think culture plays in drilling this out of people? Do you think it's actually the individual that is, is so fearful of their own success and so fearful of their own magnificence that they automatically block it themselves? Or do you think culture actually interweaves it into them, not in an, some nefarious way, but just naturally as a collective, you sort of fit into a mould? So I'm going to, and I'm not doing this to be wishy-washy, I'm going to go a little bit from column A and column B. I believe that we are scared of our own greatness. Mm. But I do believe that society as well, not nefariously, but it is society, our family, our friends. Let's say as a child, we enjoy, I'll use my thing, writing. Because I loved writing as a kid. But I enjoy writing. And you mentioned to your parents, you know, I want to be a writer. Oh, there's no money in that. Yeah, yeah. How are you going to live? And in, they're not thinking, our parents, when they say that, they're not thinking to be malicious. They're not shooting us down. They're just going on what they've learned in their life. And they know that they've got a mortgage and they've got a couple of kids and they've got things that they have to be responsible for. And they can't see how writing is going to do that. So those little comments here and there interweave that with, what we get from societies, particularly now with social media, you know, and I don't want to be sitting here pointing fingers, but it's very easy to when you go on there and there are Lamborghinis and Ferraris and the nice houses and all of these things that are going to, quote unquote, cultivate happiness. Mm-hmm. So it's just so many different, it's so many different factors that start coming in and really extinguishing and snuffing out, I I think, those childhood dreams and desires that we all have, those proclivities and the things that we're connected to. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, So writing then, as you've mentioned a few times again, you you did a lot of that as a child. What, What was it in your life that stopped you doing that, do you think? Was it just life just getting in the way? Life getting in the way. Absolutely. Life getting in the way. And, you know, also 
to be a writer, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, I, I loved it. And I would also tell stories to my friends. You know, one of my favorite childhood memories was, you know, right out of um, right out of a Norman Rockwell painting. You know, we were sitting on this stone bridge fishing with sticks and string and a piece of bread on the end of it. And I, I come up with this story and I loved doing that. But as you get older, as you know, teens and early teens and teens, you want to fit in. And being the storyteller didn't didn't jive. That wasn't cool. Writing wasn't cool. And so it just was, I, I was always the shortest kid in class. I wore the Coke bottle glasses. I had the bowl haircut. I was one of the smarter kids in class. All a recipe for getting bullied. So anything that's going to make me stick out, all of a sudden becomes something that I'm going to run the opposite direction from. Mm. So what do you see when you work with people uh, on a one-to-one -one basis? What do you see as the, the biggest hurdle for people to jump over? There is a notion there for, for my high achievers. There is a notion that they have to burn everything to the ground in order to start over, in order to pursue their calling. They have to, they have to blow it all away and start from scratch. And if you have a great sea level job, you have the beautiful house and the nice cars, and you think that you have to give all that up, those things are also part of your identity. So now you're giving up your identity and you're leaping into the unknown. It's a huge hurdle. It's a, mm. it's a massively huge hurdle. So that is, that is the primary thing that I come across. Right. Yeah, see, I tend to find that what people desire the most or what they, at least what they think they desire the most in life, usually if you actually let that go, what you truly desire presents itself. I love that. So I like, love that. People think they want, I don't know, let's use money because people, that's just a common one, right? So people desire money. And you, you dig in a little bit, you realise that the reason they want money is because they want the safety and security to be able to do whatever they want in life, right? The freedom to be able to do what they want. But when you actually... <clears throat> remove the desire for money when you really dig into it and realize they don't need they don't want money they want what money does the the, re, the real desire generally speaking turns out to be something like writing or coaching or usually giving back in some way back out of themselves rather than money money and whatever else and attention and power it usually flips back out like a reflection of the mind to go no actually We'll start serving the world rather than taking from it. We'll start creating. I, I, God, I love that. I, I think there's so much that we can unpack there because it really, we don't often want the thing. We want how we think the thing is going to make us feel. So we're chasing after the BMW and I'm a car guy and I have no, I have no qualms if somebody wants a BMW, but if it's going to be a way of creating your identity, that's when we start coming into an issue. But, you know, you think that that, BMW is going to attract the opposite sex. Yeah. It's going to bring you status when you drive up to a valet parking restaurant or, you know, whatever it is. And when we peel back, like you said, we go a little bit behind that. What is it that you want and how else can we cultivate that emotion? It oftentimes you're right, comes down to service and giving back, which is, which I really think is the ultimate representation of finding that meaning. It's, it's, it's alchemizing what we feel inside and our personal experiences and 
creating whatever it may be. I don't care if it's baking. I don't care if it's art, composing, and then taking that next really bold step and sharing it with the world. And that action is an important step, isn't it? Because a lot of people, particularly in the personal development world, they'll just consume, consume, consume content. And there's actually no conviction. There's no action behind it. And then they wonder five years later why nothing's changed. Um, but it's the law of attraction stuff that people fall into. And so I'm just going to sit there and pray and hope. And that's just not the way the world works, is it? No, I love, I mean, you know, Tony Robbins, love him or hate him or whatever you think about him, but he's got a great saying about that. You can't go to the garden and yell, no weeds, no weeds, no weeds. It's not going to work. You know, you've got to meet the universe halfway. You have to do the work. I put up, um, I put up a post last week where I, exactly what you were talking about. When I got out of prison, I started when I was in prison, but when I got out of prison and had access to more material, mm. I consumed, <clears throat> excuse me, I consumed self-help material like a junkie like a junkie seeking my next fix without taking any action mm -hmm. you know and feeling so much shame that all of these things that worked for millions of people weren't working for me mm -hmm. but i realized that i was you know chasing that silver bullet that was going to you know fix everything so what was it in you at that point that made you take action was there a turning point there was absolutely a turning point, and it was just that understanding that there was a lot of shame that I felt for not succeeding, for not getting ahead. Mm. And I unpacked that shame, and I realized that I was just looking for that, that elusive silver bullet. Yeah. And when I realized that there's no one thing that is going to, and I hate the word fix, but I did use it at the time, I'm not... I'm not an appliance. None of us are appliances. We're not broken. We don't need to be fixed. But at the time I said, you know, I'm trying to find this one thing that's going to fix me and it doesn't exist. And I, and I was able to extrapolate from that. Yes, this person may have sold millions of copies with their book, with their system, but it's what worked for them. And I said, what are the, akin to what you were just talking about with somebody's desire and kind of letting go of the thing and looking at what's behind the thing, I let go of the systems and processes that they put place. And I said, what's their intention behind it? And I said, how can I recreate that intention for myself? And that really was a turning point in that of not finishing a book and reaching for the next one as soon as I closed the back cover and saying, let me digest that. Let me understand what they were actually what they were trying to get to and what maybe their emotions were that they were trying to cultivate for themselves and how can I create that for my for myself? Mm. Mm. There does seem to be as well some uh, universal principle that the more that the more energy and intention you put out there to do good, however that seems to you, there is a, a, an equal and opposite, and I don't want to get fluffy here. That's the last thing I am, but. Uh, return of that field and it shows up in numerous different ways but if you expect it in a certain way it most certainly won't happen that way i had a hard i had a hard time and quite frankly i'll be very honest i still have i still struggle with the how i still get hung up on the how how the goal is going to come to fruition and you know letting go of that how and just doing the work and putting the energy out there and letting mm -hmm. go of that how and, you know, it, it coming through however it's going to come through.
I don't yeah. know how that is. And I don't want to get woo-woo either, but I do believe in that letting go of that how. And then for me, and I see it with my clients often, and I wonder if you see it with yours, is getting stuck in that how. I need to know how I'm using money as an example, because we use that. How am I going to make a million dollars? Where is that million dollars going to come from? I need to know where every penny comes from. Yeah. Well, the how is, it's a process, isn't it? It's very left brain, linear patterns to, so that we can conceptualize reality in some way. Right. But it seems that the more humans develop, the more you have to reside in that unknown. You, you cannot live in the known all the time. It's just simply, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 seconds. Anything could happen. And we have to be okay with that and surrender that to something that's, in my perspective, bigger than what we are as, as an individual. You know what I mean? And that's terrifying. Exactly, that's, yeah. ter- that's terrifying. I, I mean, right, we love certainty. We love the known. And anything that ventures outside of that is is absolutely terrifying will keep us you know frozen we need to know and to have you know what comes down to me is um it's self self-trust is really that self-trust of whatever may happen i don't know what is going to happen but i know that i'll be okay you know and i think that's just such a powerful place to be everything could fall apart but you know what i'll be okay and i think i think okay is an underestimated word Quite frankly, yeah. you know, I mean, if you're if you're terrified of doing something, but you know that you're going to be okay at the other end of it, there's great value in that, and that's self trust. Completely agree. Completely agree. A lot of like spirituality, the like ancient spirituality, is essentially being completely at peace on the middle way in the unknown, the Tao, walking the Tao, and it's just the middle path and. Regardless of the weather, uh, if you use the weather as a metaphor, you cannot change the weather. Just leave it as it is. If it's if it's raining, just enjoy the wetness. And if it's red hot, enjoy the heat, and do what you need to do to survive. If you, if even if you want to survive, it's up to you at that point, I suppose. But I think a lot of that as well ties into facing reality as it is. And not trying to change stuff and fix everything because that again falls into like knowledge and certainty, which goes a long way. We need those things, of course, knowledge in particular. But when that seems to be the pinnacle of what your life experience is, if all you're doing is getting knowledge for knowledge's sake, those are the type of people that I tend to find have the hardest issues with. Um, as you mentioned before, you know, you have successful people that can't step outside of that success to see their real self that they identify with that success. And that's where I see knowledge and, that, and the success that tend to go hand in hand. Have you found something similar? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, the more that we know, the more we get in our own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, really, when it comes to um, just knowledge, you know, we well, no, actually, I want to rephrase that unexercised knowledge if we just intellectually know something and we don't embody what it is that we know we don't put it into action we don't implement it that's that's how i think we get in our own way because it's very easy to say when we intellectually understand something um no that's not the way it should be 
which is, you know, that sentence is loaded with so many things <laughs> that you were saying of, you know, accepting reality. Mm. That when we say it's not the way it should be, well, it's raining outside. Go tell the rain it shouldn't be raining. Go tell water it shouldn't be wet. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's a, that's a high level of consciousness to actually be able to embody and live that way. There's very few people that can actually accept life as it is rather than trying to... I mean, look at what we're doing. Uh, you know, we try and block out the sun, for example. It's like, why are we trying to block out the sun for? It, just leave the sun as it is. It makes no sense. Do you know what I mean? But hey, we, we don't get into that. But um, the, let's let's talk a bit about, because we were speaking off camera, about the benefits potentially of ayahuasca and other psychedelics. Uh, do you have experience with this or, do, or are you just interested in, in getting into it? I, in my early 20s, um, took mushrooms, but it was mm. not for any kind of spiritual journey. It was as a dopey 20-year-old who wanted to trip. That yeah. was the only thing that I did. And that actually is a crazy story unto itself. I had a really bad um, reaction. I, I later, about last year, I found out there's a very small percentage of people who um, mushrooms can actually cause um, cramping, full body mm. cramping. And right. so that actually happened to me during my, at the end of my trip, my entire body cramped up. I mean, I couldn't control it. My, my, my head snapped this way and I fell forward and I hit my temple on the corner base molding of my friend's um, bedroom uh, wall. Oh, dear. And, it, and it, <clears throat> my friends were in the other room, they came racing in and yeah. they, they were like, you okay? I said, yeah, I don't know what happened. I got cramped up. And then this is where it gets super interesting. My friend Sean has to take the story over from here. He said, we, we were holding you. We held you up. And he goes, and you died. He goes, you became dead weight. We couldn't. And my two buddies are very strong, very athletic, very strong. I'm a tiny guy. They dropped me. And I actually hit my head on the same corner molding again. <laughs> and I, I, left, I left my body. And I, I, they, they said I had no pulse and no breathing for about two to three minutes. And I, I floated up out of my body, watched the scene. I floated through the roof, through the house. And when I told them, when I came to, said, no, you're, you're full of shit. There's no way that that happened. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I said, oh, really? I said, you were in the living room, which was a couple, couple rooms away, which I had no way of seeing it. And you were holding your head in your hands going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You were in the kitchen going, what are we going to tell his dad? What are we going to tell his dad? And their faces just dropped. They're like, how, would you, how could you possibly know that? Mm. So that is my, that's my only experience with psychedelics. But I've been feeling that whisper and that call. So I'd love to, I, I mean, I know that mm. you have experience in that. So this is, I'm so curious, your experiences and what you've, what drew you to it? You know, um, what was your calling? Uh, I think I was searching for something, seeking something, uh, you might call it meaning. I think it's, I think it was a, a sense of, I was just looking for the truth, I think. And I think I'm, I'm still looking for that now, to be honest. Sometimes, I, I, sometimes I, I'm a living example of it and other times I'm not. And then I seek, I'm, that's when I'm seeking it. And Ayahuasca I did in 2015, first time. And that was um, 
I did it on my own with like a, a lady who'd trained with the certain tribes in the Amazon and everything. I did that just her, her and I. And then a, a second time I did it with a, a, my girlfriend's uncle uh, and the same lady. And then after that, we did it in a group at the same place, but we moved into a group scenario. There's 17, 18 of us all in the yurt and um, with the proper chants and everything f- from the Amazon. And I mean, ayahuasca itself, if you don't have any sense of a spirit world or anything like that, then, uh, and you want proof and you want evidence of it, ayahuasca will give it to you. Uh, well, I can't say for sure, but 99% confident ayahuasca will give it to you. And so as an example, I've just come off a, a retreat and uh, this, that was my fifth, this was the fifth one, I think. The, the, one of the, the, the most impactful sections of this ceremony was that the, the entire body, the entire being, I didn't know whether I was alive or dead. I had no idea. And there was an involuntary eye, eye opening that made me realise, okay, I'm, I am actually alive here. I'm in this room. Otherwise, I'd have no idea. The body had gone. Um, I was in some weird place, dimensional, whatever it was. I've got no idea. And those type of experiences, when you condense down, when your consciousness condenses again, back down into the human body, so you can make sense of the world again and, and like hold conversations or whatever, you, you always have that as your like underlying and fundamental reality at that point, that this is merely a contracted form of that. So you can so you can always you can uh, there's a in the Bible it says have one foot in the uh, one foot in the world one foot out of it something like that and that's sort of the way I try and live my life based on experiences like that from ayahuasca so that's one of the biggest impactful things that happened to me on this most recent one but it, it gets under all of your neuroses all of the fears all of the suppressed and repressed emotions and events that you think have happened in your life because many of them haven't, you just think they have. So all these things that are there, and you can, uh, on Saturday evening, I could actually pick one, and I'd, I'd pick it, and then I'd go into it, deal with it, recontextualize the circumstances. And that is like the light of, in my, in my view, that is the light of awareness being put onto it, which is the so-called healing process. Because isn't it, isn't it all just shadow? Isn't it all just... Uh, darkness that when the light goes onto it, we can actually see things for what they are rather than what we think they were. And that is what heals things. So that's what I got from Ayahuasca this last time. So, I mean, there's so many things. I'm, thank you for that. There's so many things I'm hearing in there is, um, I, you know, one that came ringing through is perspective. Mm-hmm. It just having seen that expansive world and understanding that we're living in a contracted version of that that's just a huge shift in perspective i have to imagine when something negative happens in your life you're able to contextualize that against the much larger picture and see that this thing that maybe you thought was so terrible isn't that terrible am i kind of hearing that correctly or that's that's bang on yeah and uh, the word i like to use is context because you and I conversing here, that is to me, that's content. We're holding a, a linear thing. 
context is how that is perceived and how the, what worldview are you holding that within? And a lot of the world is stuck. It's stuck in content. It's like, okay, this happened, therefore this happens, and therefore I'm going to do this. It's like content. It's just a continual line of noise. Whereas context is more interwoven, holistic, interconnected, and you can then choose how to see these things rather than it just affecting you. So, so um, can I, I'd love to ask a question on that. When you mm. said that um, the looking back at some of the things that uh, happened in life that maybe were traumatic or and maybe didn't even happen, but you were able to pick one and pull it out and bring that awareness to it and in a sense choose how you looked at it. What, what I'm hearing on that is because you are in this, uh, just for lack of a better term, a different state, mm. the emotional, physical response of your body is not triggered. You are just looking at the event without that additional thing saying, this is bad. Energizing it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know, putting, yeah, putting a charge to it, judging it, and really being able to say, X, X happened. And it, that's it. You know, no story, no anything. X happened or maybe X didn't happen. But having that physical, emotional response gets removed and you get to, you get to almost uh, like a, a piece of clay mold mm. it. That's it. And you know, I, I think I did a post and used this image where there was a big a statue that was sort of molding itself out. Yep, I remember that. I mean, it was a great post. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah and, and that is like, I can't remember who said it, but it was a famous sculptor. And he basically said, I am not creating this. It is showing me. And I'm cre it, that is doing it to itself through me. Was that, it was Da Vinci or Michelangelo? I think, yeah, right? it was, I think I, it was I, Michelangelo. Yeah, I'm just, I'm letting the, I'm letting the angel that lives within that block of marble out. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and that is how I sort of see whether that's the way I ask or not. Um, I'm a, I don't know. And I'm happy with not knowing that. But that is how I try and live my life based on these experiences. That everything is a gift. Isn't like the ordinary. Seeing the magnificence in the ordinary. At what, at what, uh, what can happen in your life at that point that can knock you off center? When you see the magnificence and, the, and the, the, the beauty in absolutely everything, that doesn't mean you have to walk around and, you know, be happy all the time and all that. Far from it. But just to, just to have that underlying uh, context of beauty and magnificence, when the rain and the thunder and the lightning is, is all around you, it's like, well, you know, this is, this is perfectly in alignment with everything that's going on. And it's a very difficult, I think, because if I'd have heard myself say this 10 years ago, I'd have said, you're barking mad. I'd say you were crazy, man. So I understand that when I communicate with people, it's sometimes you have to come across a little bit less um, intense than that. But, but it's just a reality for me. And ayahuasca and psychedelics, mushrooms and things like that have played a huge role in doing that. So uh, these are ancient, in my opinion, ancient technologies, ayahuasca in particular, ancient Amazonian technology. And the Western civilization is crying out. It's crying out for some 
ancient wisdom rather than just materialistic, atheistic type behavior where it's just technology and instant gratification and all this stuff. To me, ayahuasca is like an initiation into a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose of life. You know, that's how I sort of see it. I, I love that because it just makes me think when I was reading all of that self-help material and consuming mm. everything, I discovered the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching, meditations, Marcus Aurelius. And what really dawned on me was all the world's wisdom was written thousands of years ago. The, the way to live a meaningful life, a joyful life, which again, doesn't mean running around being happy all the time, because that's an unrealistic expectation. And yeah. if you're happy all the time, how the heck do you know that you're happy? So, exactly. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but I realized that and all, all I feel that we've been doing is regurgitating that through our own experiences. But if you really want to get to the core of a wisdom is to go back to those ancient texts. And to your point with ayahuasca, that has been around for thousands of years. And I, I love that term technology because I think mm -hmm. it really is a technology. And to, mm -hmm. we don't have to, we love overcomplicating things. And we can go back to a much simpler time. And it may be a much simpler time, doesn't mean that it's an easy time. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the philosophies and doing that work is simple in its concept very difficult in its execution mm, mm. and human nature doesn't change if at all it definitely doesn't change quickly so timeless this is why it's, it, they all seem ancient it's because this information is timeless it'll be there forever and ever and it, like we've got the books that are written today in the personal development industry uh, vast majority of it is it's very constricted and compact versions of what that is if you actually read the Gita or even the Quran and the Bible, the New Testament and stuff, if you read those things with the right glasses on, they're magnificent pieces of art. But most people, because of the state of consciousness, whether you believe in that we're devolving or evolving, that's, a, that's another philo philosophical debate. But you see, you see and read things and, and see people as you are, don't you? You don't see them as they are. You see them as you are. And so people are reading the Bible as very often as like power structures to keep power because they are seeking the power within themselves. So then they read the Bible and it's going, oh, yeah, that's satisfying my need to get power. I'm going to go and use this as the tool to get that. And so, okay, take a step back. Well, I, the uh, you actually were one of the people who introduced me, and I'm now blanking on his name, uh, the author of Power Versus Force. David Hawkins, yeah. Yeah. He, um, his consciousness scale that Beautiful. he has, you know, mm -hmm. from shame all the way to enlightenment, uh, the Quran, the Bible, the Gita, all of these things are in the, if I remember correctly, the seven to 800 range, mm -hmm. Correct, you know, yeah. they're way up there on that consciousness scale of just that, that's the timelessness and the beauty of, of the messages that are contained therein. Mm -hmm. And it really, I love how you said that. It really is how, what the lens we put on it. Mm. You know, and we also if we have a bias towards something, we're going to read anything, whether it's current events or something ancient, and we're going to put our bias on it. We're going to make it mean what we want it to mean so that we can feel in control and feel right. Yeah. And, and you do a lot of writing. How important do you think symbols are? You know, when humans write 
beautiful writers place metaphors and symbols and all this in their writing. Because to me, it seems like, uh, although we, we like to read linear, it's a, our minds are actually non-linear. They're actually quite chaotic. And to drop symbols in there, we get the archetypes, what Carl Jung spoke extensively about. Um, so do you, do you purposely put those into your writing or, or have you like, I suppose, have you not thought about doing that? This is super interesting and it's making me think about my, my writing process. Mm. And when I am really in it, when I'm having that moment of flow, when I, these moments that I crave and that I love and that if I chase, I'm going to make them go away. Mm. But when I'm just in it, oh man, I don't mean to sound cheesy, but I'm just a vessel. I'm just a vessel. The words come from somewhere else and they come through my fingers and they go through the keyboard. Mm. I, there are times when I'm in that zone and I go back and I read what I wrote and I can, I just say, Holy crap, where did that come from? And I think there, there are those symbols that are put in there, but I can't say that I'm consciously doing that. <laughs> it just, it, it blows. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy thing. Yeah, yeah. Something I've been considering lately to do with writing is uh, language, rather, is the origin of these words and where they've come from historically. It's just a magical study. Isn't it, though? It's just brilliant to go back and actually look at the words that we use mm. and really understand what they mean. Mm. and how they've been contorted yeah. and changed, yeah. manipulated. And it's, it is, I, I'm right there with you. I don't do a tremendous amount. I've started noticing with my writing that I am getting more into that. Mm. And I want to know the definition of these words. Yes. And I want to make sure that I'm, quite frankly, wielding them correctly. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, I always, I've got to the point, and it's actually come up on ayahuasca again, that language and i can only speak as um in the english language because i can't speak anything else so i can only speak for that language that it's actually nature getting to lineate itself via the human mind because what what is a human other than the at the moment as far as we're aware the pinnacle of nature as far as we're aware and isn't language a, a manifestation of that higher nature? So we've got, look at the letter M, for example, it's like a mountain range. And we have like the letter O, and it's like you do that with your mouth, O. Is that not just nature creating language for us to be able to communicate and expand itself further and further and further without potentially destroying itself that's how that's how where i've got at the moment with language so i hope i hope this ties that there's something that uh as a writer i've been struggling with and i, I wrote a post about this a couple of weeks ago and it was basically even when the words come through there are I'm trying to tap into something much higher than myself. And 
so language is, is, is beautiful and I love words and the meanings of words, but I'll tell you, I, I often feel that I can't ever quite grasp yes. what it is that I want to say. It I understand. Always out of my reach. It, it, it's like when my cat used to knock her toy underneath the couch and I'd put my arm underneath and I couldn't reach it. I could, I could feel it. I could feel it, but I just, my arms were not long enough and I just couldn't get it. And I actually bat it further away. And that, that's, what, that's the, the struggle of a writer. And what you just said is that nature, I mean, think about, geez, we could have an hour long conversation on this, just the beauty and complexity of nature. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to take, albeit our very beautiful language, but our very simple language and mm-hmm. capture that and encapsulate something as massive as nature with a, a sentence or two. And that, that's, where I, that's where I struggle. Yeah. And I think that's where metaphor is such a beautiful tool that if you can use very simple words and create such profound meaning for people, I mean, Rumi, the, the, the Sufi poet, do you know Rumi? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, his way with words, it's just, he could write like 20, 30 words and your entire mind's just gone from what absolutely majestic. It's, it's uh, Rumi, um, Lao Tzu in the Tao, Tao Te Ching. Mm. I just very simple language. And I think there's even one in the Tao that is, you know, the, the master doesn't have to use, I'm going to get this completely wrong, but it's the master doesn't use fancy words. Mm-hmm. Anybody, in a sense, anybody who uses fancy words doesn't understand. Those who understand can use very simple words. And I think there's so much to that. I, I've got to be careful in my own writing. Uh, I do like using some $10 words on occasion, but I have to go back and say, is that $10 word, um, is that my ego? Yes. Is that actually fueling things? Can I get by with a 50-cent word? Is a 50-cent, mm-hmm. because oftentimes a 50-cent word is way more powerful than a $10 word. And it's, I really got, I really got to check my ego on those. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a set structure of when you write? So do, do you set out at the beginning, for example, a black canvas of setting out, right, I'm going to write 12 chapters. I'm going to put this many in, uh, this many paragraphs, blah, blah, blah. Do you have that set out up front or do you just write and see where it goes? I just write and see where it goes. I, I, I literally, I wrote um, a million words, about a million words to get to the 52,000 that are in blank canvas. I have no rhyme or reason. Now that I'm starting in the second book, I said, you know, I, I've written one. I know what a battle it is. I know how much work it is. I, I should I should know how to do this. Mm. The whole thing's a mess already. I mean, I just, I realize, and that's my process and that's okay. Mm. So I, what I really, the, the structure that I put behind it is eight to 10 every morning. That's okay. literally the only structure I put around it. Um, sometimes at night, before I go to sleep, I will, I will ask my subconscious mind, what do I want to write about tomorrow? Mm-hmm. You know, to, to plant a seed for uh, a subject that I want to explore. Mm-hmm. And I, really, I really just let it go. I sit at the keys and I just start typing and, and I see where it goes. And that's also why it creates a bloody mess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, so what are you writing this next book about? Is it personal development again or about your life again? It is going to be personal development. The first one was pure memoir. Uh, I started doing it as personal development, self-help. 
And my first editor said, you know, I think you'd be really well served to turn this into a memoir because you write in the first person brilliantly and that's not an easy task to do. So I completely overhauled that one. This one, I am starting off writing it as personal development, but I think it's going to transform more into memoir again. But the idea of it is, it's so funny. This is how messy my process is. I can't even, I have a difficult time articulating to you this thing that I've already worked on for five months. But it circles back to what we were talking about before, is the will to meaning. Mm. And Freud said that we had a will to pleasure. And Adler said that we had a, you know, basically a will to power. And what I want to explore is how we really go down the two paths of pleasure and power, trying to find meaning. And how do we get back to the path of meaning? You know, we can either make a conscious decision to get off of our treadmill and create something new. Life will knock us off our treadmill or we do absolutely nothing. Mm. And our dying breath is, I wish I had done more. That's that's where I'm that's where I'm going with this is how do we cultivate that? I mean, how do we get off our the paths that we've been conditioned to be on, and how do we cultivate that that meaning in our life? Mm. Well, and I think how did I, how did I do that? Sorry. I <laughs> know oh, I was going to say that the, the the top regret of the dying was uh, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something along the lines of I had the courage to live true to myself. That was the number one regret of the dying. And, but I tend to find people don't actually know what that means. They don't know what that looks like uh, because they've never done it. It, it. Well, it makes me think about what we were talking about earlier. It's terrifying because to look at that is to look into the unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's an extremely scary thing. It's funny that you mentioned the top regrets of the dying. I was in, in working on the book. I looked up Bronnie Ware's uh, top five and I read them. And I feel that I'm content in life. I feel fulfilled. I feel like I'm living a life of meaning. But man, I will tell you when I read those five, they they were a visceral punch to the gut where I was like, I, and I wasn't beating myself up. I was like, I can do more. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I've never actually read that book, to be fair. I just read the... Same here. Yeah, the main points, yeah. <laughs> So I've got a question about meaning. Um, I've read Viktor Frankl's book, fantastic book. Um, Sigmund Freud, you mentioned Will to Power, Adler. Uh, sorry, it was Adler, Will to, Will to Power, wasn't it? Um, why why meaning? What, why are we searching for meaning, do you think? So I have a different opinion there. I think what we're actually looking for, we need to go beyond meaning and ask, why are we searching for meaning? And I think that that meaning, that uh, I think reality is inherently meaningless. There is no inherent meaning to reality. It, you are, it's its own meaning, right? So like purpose, life purpose, people talk about it. It's like, well, life doesn't have an inherent purpose. Life's purpose is you. Right, but that doesn't sit well with people. It doesn't. You can't, they can't grasp that because they want something to categorize and conceptualize, and they can't do that with that. So I think what people are actually searching for is peace. And we use 
meaning as that vessel to get to peace. You just you just set off a whole spark of thoughts in my in my mind because one of the one of the pieces that I wrote was what what are our core desires in life? What is it that we truly want? And, and I I wrote love, acceptance, and peace. Nice is is what we truly want, and we we are conditioned to pursue that pleasure and that power as a means to get those things. Pleasure and power are never ever going to create love, acceptance, and peace. And I I love that you said that because I said the only way to do that is meaning. Mm-hmm. The only way to do that is meaning to to be able to get there. And it really, you know, Viktor Frankl said, uh, you know, we ask what is the, you know, what is the meaning of life? And I believe he said it's not for us to, it's for us to give life meaning. Life doesn't give us meaning, which you were saying before. Mm-hmm. Reality is meaningless. It's mm-hmm. only the meaning that we give to it. It's the the lens that we view something through. You and I have um, a tremendous amount of similarities, but if you were to put us in front of, put us on a beach and stare out at the horizon, we're going to say very different things. Mm-hmm. And that's that meaning that we're giving to our experience. Yeah, sure. Mm. And have you ever studied like ego development models before? Things like spiral dynamics. Have you ever heard of that? No, I have not heard of that. Uh, I have got the book here. Spiral dynamics. Perfect. It's Good. called Mastering Values, Leadership, and Change. That's the original, but there's a few others uh, after that. And basically what that says is that the human ego and civilization, so as an individual and collective, go through stages, and they can evolve and devolve through these stages based on events that go on. And when you see where we're at today and the events, some of the events that are happening in the world, you notice which stage we're moving through. You can start to pinpoint it. It gives you that saying, ah, I understand why this person thinks like this, because they're there. I understand why they're... And then you end up being very, when you're around people, very quiet, and you turn into a student of people, and you make... Oh, well, I do. I can speak for myself. I make notes on... He's, for example, that used the colours, he's green. And then I'd make notes on his language patterns and how he's seen the world. And then he might be communicating with, once again, we use that orange. And orange is very capitalistic, uh, very, you know, uh, in, in the positive sense, selfish, not in the negative sense of the word, in the positive sense of the word, they're very inherently selfish. The greens, on the other hand, are very inherently selfless. So it's, and then they'll, they'll end up in a battle and you'll be like, ah, okay, they don't understand that. They don't understand them. And because you're sort of above the map and looking at the map rather than in the map, the map is not the territory, right? So you're actually looking at the map rather than being in the territory. You can go, ah, okay, I've got a, grasp, a greater understanding of human psychology, human philosophy at this point. You don't have to judge people. They just are where they are. And this is what people don't do. We're so stuck in the world at the moment that everyone's at loggerheads with each other. If we just had a degree of understanding of the people are at different levels of consciousness and therefore see the world differently, have different senses, uh, sense-making capabilities. If you look at IQ, 
IQ plays an enormous role in how people see the world. If they've had a poor upbringing with, you know, very low wages, parents and everything, they're going to have a completely different outlook on life than someone who's gone to the best universities in, in, in the world. It's going to be completely different. And people don't grasp that. We need a more wholesome and holistic comprehension of reality. But people, unfortunately, don't want to put the effort in. Um, and I think that's probably down to what we mentioned earlier to do with the cultural conditioning, because we might as well just get on that treadmill and work. And, but as you said, until they, until something gets bad enough, they generally don't pull the trigger. I think, I think, and that's something that I want to uh, explore with the next book and just in life in general is, you know, I knew before prison that I, I was not happy. You know, I was, I pretended to be happy, but I was not happy, but I, I lacked the courage back to that five regret of the dying, if you will. I mean, I lacked the courage to create the life that I wanted to create and I needed, you know, I think I, I honestly think I subconsciously self-sabotaged my life in one of the grandest fashions in the world to get to that, um, you know, blank canvas, if you will, so that I could create the life I wanted from scratch without having to give up anything. And the, the, you know, people, people have a very difficult time doing that to consciously step off the treadmill is a, that's an act of bravery. Yes. I act, I actually, you know, prison, losing everything, divorce, suicide ideation. That was actually the easier route for me than consciously acting courageously and being clear about what I wanted to create in my life and trying to create it. I took the easy way out. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of courage. An exorbitant amount. I mean, I applaud anybody. I applaud my, my clients to realize that they're not happy, you know, even with a $500,000 a year salary and saying, I want more meaning and doing something, going out and trying to do something about it. Mm. I applaud that because that's a huge amount of, huge amount of courage. Can I, um, I would love to ask a question based on that book and what you were saying with the using, let's say the green and the orange and wishing that people were able to understand that. Do you think there is, any way, this could be way too broad of a question, but any way to actually implement that somehow to start integrating that thought process into society. So we have a little bit of that empathy where somebody is coming from. Um, yes. I mean, the higher that you go up the so-called spiral, the, so, so the Western civilization right now is, is what's known as orange, generally speaking, inherently selfish, not necessarily in the bad sense. Again, very capitalistic where it needs to make a profit in order to feel worthy and they'll do anything for profit. They'll cut down rainforests to make money, right? The next level, according to the spiral, is the green, which you see a lot of at the moment in both its toxic and its good side. The toxic side is um, complete egalitarianism, so everyone's the same level. There's no one any better than anyone else. You can see how that can sort of hold people back. And the good side of it is, okay, equality and things like that. So you see both sides again. There's... There's dark and light in all of them. And then past the green stage, you, that you move into what's known as tier two. Now, what you've asked, the question that you've asked there is where these people reside. So tier two, you move into yellow, which is more systems thinking. So how do we implement certain systems throughout society in order to help all the ones below tier two so they don't destroy each other? And we, we try and get along as best we can. 
And that's what tier two, it goes into it in detail about what you can do. And then above yellow is more the, uh, they call it turquoise. It's, it's more, um, how could I explain it? You probably have them in the US. You know, like Osho's, you know, Osho, the, the, the spiritual yep. leader. He's like village, whatever it was over there. Yes, absolutely. That would be turquoise. So it's like a high consciousness place. Uh, a high consciousness thinking that they come out of the human and create something beautiful. That's turquoise, but there's very few people up there. So on Hawkins's map, that would probably be 600 and above. Mm, okay. Whereas okay. yellow would be probably like 400 up to 600 on Hawkins's map. You can, they, they, they do align very, very close. You can put one on top of the other. They sound, yeah, they sound very interwoven. They are indeed, yeah. And there's another one called um, The Ego Development Model by Susan Cook-Greuter. She's very good on YouTube. Just put her in. She's, she's still alive. She's great. She's um, like a university lecturer. And she talks about, she, she uses Ken Wilber. Do you know him? Yes, absolutely. She uses a lot of Ken Wilber's work okay. to, to, to go through. But you could just put one on top of each other and you, you would get a pile of the same stuff in different words, really. So... Yeah, but to, to answer your question, what could you do? The answer is you can only do what, uh, as you've said throughout this thing, is the calling that you've got within you is to bring that out to the best of your ability. And if people who their calling is to, to make big changes in society, they have to have the conviction to get out there and, and face life as it is. Don't try and run from it. Take all the hardships, take all the blessings that come your way. And in my opinion, just go for it. Absolutely have. I know it's easy to sit here and say, but have as little fear as possible. Just take life by the scuff of the neck and just run and see where you end up. Because it, it, it seems that the more risks you take, the more rewards naturally come your way. Oh, absolutely. I mean... No ifs, ands, or buts. If we, well, I mean, the more, the more risk we take, the more our world expands. The yeah. more we capitulate to fear, mm -hmm. uh, the the more our world shrinks. You know, and it oftentimes happens as we get older. Yeah, things become scarier, and we become, uh, you know, we, we put ourselves in our. We are all in some form of mental prison or another, but the walls actually start shrinking the more we capitulate to that fear. Mm. And when we, when we, to your point, take those risks, we increase the number of opportunities and possibilities available to us, mm. and we really increase our freedom through that. And that, yes. that to me is when we have freedom, we ultimately cultivate peace yes i think that they're, they're, they're intrinsically linked it's absolutely i mean they are two sides of the same coin yes mm -hmm. and desire funnily enough if you look at hawkins's map desire is a as a, um, a framework would you call it or it's not really an emotion as such desire but that's actually in a negative energy field because you're seeking something that isn't reality it's not you know you're looking something looking for something that's not there looking as if it's not already residing within you um so i, I think there's in the scriptures there's a lot talking about you know desire desire is it one of the deadly sins or something i'm not too sure about that but it's like well can we recontextualize what desire is and go okay the desire is already sitting in here that's waiting to be brought out of you 
it's not something that you can go and buy. It's not something you can go and put monetary value on. You can't spend really spend time to acquire it. It's there ready, waiting for you. You just need to remove, like you did, black canvas. When you when you say that term to me, I get the image of the phoenix. And you know, and the phoenix just burns itself to the ground and then phew, comes back out. That's sort of the image I got from that. That is God, that makes me smile again because the the book title actually came from the author Kamal Ravikant. Um, yes. who is, is he's a friend of mine and oh, nice. we were we were sitting over lunch and i told him this story and he just looked at me and he goes craig that's the title of your book so i said really and i said yeah and he looked at me after that and he said man you know what you're the phoenix he's like you burnt to the ground and you rose to the ashes and i just you know it was actually my first time meeting him i had reached out to him after reading his books and he miraculously said, are you in New York City? I'd love to meet you. And I wow. couldn't believe it. So I'm sitting across from this guy that I admire yeah. so much. And he's sitting here giving me the title of the book and then calling me the Phoenix. You know, at the time, I actually uh, didn't quite feel worthy of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, later looking back at it, I could just say, holy, holy cow, what an inflection point in my life. That's incredible because he's a very, he's written a couple of books, hasn't he? I haven't read them. He's got three out. He's got three. He's got um, two nonfiction and one fiction, although it's based on his real-life experience of doing the Camino de Santiago. Okay, that is the, uh, what's the call it? Like a, uh, a long walk, isn't it? Pilgrimage, yeah. Pilgrimage, yeah, yeah. Pilgrimage, yeah. Yeah, across, um, God, I'm going to get this wrong, but Spain, I think it starts and it can go into France. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's 500 and... At least 500? I forget how long it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a long way. It's a journey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's he, a long way. Is it his brother Naval? That is correct. He's a very famous guy, huh? Yeah, yeah. Very. I mean, Naval is, I mean, considered one of the top um, VCs in Silicon Valley. They call, don't they call him the philosopher? The philosopher of Silicon Valley or something like that? They do. He's, I mean, wickedly interesting. He's got some amazing somebody somebody actually took um with his permission naval's tweets because even his tweets are just so profound they put them together into the almanac uh, almanac of um naval ravikant and it's yeah. like an um, amazon bestseller yeah well eric jorgensen i think that's the guy who wrote that i've read that have you yeah i mean matt that is incredible you just take your tweets and turn it into a book that's incredible but the value that you must be given is 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 brilliant you know, you know, that makes me think of something here that's so important to doing work that brings us joy is we can create something of so much value that doesn't, it doesn't have to be that hard to do. We get in our own way. This guy just had an idea to take these tweets and to put them together into a cohesive package. Not saying it was not a tremendous amount of work. Putting together any book is a tremendous amount of work, but it's not as overwhelming as we think. So when we start thinking about creating something our brains go to this like massive entity and if we don't know how to do it it's really hard to take that first step but we don't have to overcomplicate things you are a brilliant writer if you wanted to you could take all your existing posts and you could put them together in a meaningful way yeah, and, yeah, call yeah. It a, and call it a book mm. you you very easily could mm. do you know what i like to, do you have a note-taking system 
I use, um, I use Evernote to keep track of my notes and I use Grammarly to write. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever heard of round research? I have not. Or obsidian? No. Oh, you're going to have to check these out, man. This is game changing. Okay. All right. Um, let me just, I'll try and get it on here and I'll share the screen if I can. Um, when I do recordings, I try and just delete everything so I don't get stuck on uh, any screens. Right. So wrong research is absolutely incredible, right? What you do is you, you write all your notes onto the platform. So if I, uh, let me share the screen here. I don't know if we're going to be able to do this, but for people on listening to podcasts, uh, watch the video and I'll try and share the screen. Okay, wrong research. Okay, can you see that? Yes. Okay. So at the moment, these are just, sometimes I use them for daily notes, so some daily notes taken in there. But if I click here in the find or create page, I could put, um, I don't know, let's say holistic health, because I'm into all that. So if I put, uh, let's that right, holistic health. See, so I'll put that in. And every single note I took about holistic health is then saved in this section. And I can simply like just copy. And so if I then create a page called um, holistic health book, spot that wrong, just make any difference. I'll then start putting all my notes that I've ever made and you create chapters of books very quickly. And oh, this is a game changer. It is a game changer. So that there, if I just, I can then put that in the side there of the. And that's going to go over to your shortcuts. I can put oh, wow. that over there, and then I'll go back onto my notes, holistic uh, health, and then I can just copy and paste them in there. Everything I've ever made. So like you know western medicine for example so then i could click western medicine and then and the things i've written about western medicine are in there and then i could just copy and paste them all in so you just tag the notes that you're making um and if you can do quotes do you did you did you create a um a, a central key for your hashtags just so they don't get out of control just so you kind no, of no i want them out of control i mean that's the whole point Ooh, so okay so like that's the brain i've built they're all interconnected they call it a second brain so like every whenever you write a note um go back onto western medicine whenever we write a note i tag them on various different ways of where i think i might have them in the future so I could be writing about personal development and then I could think of fear. So let's say we're writing about fear. Where would I be using fear in the future? It's probably going to be something along the lines of um, psychology, um, death maybe, because that's the primary fear. So then I'd, I'd tag everything that I think I might use them in the future. And then whenever I put in death up here, it'll spit itself out. If I haven't made no notes on death, but if I've made notes on death, they'd then spit out and I could put it into the book or the article or whatever you do. This is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to, um, after, we, after we're done, if you wouldn't mind just shooting that to me, just sure. so I can remember, that would be brilliant because that, I, I, you know, I even loved the color of it. I love oh, the yeah. of it. It's very friendly. It just, I felt good looking at 
The, to be fair, the colour is usually white and black. I've edited the coding to make it look that colour. But you can do what you... There, there are loads online on GitHub, I think it's called, is it? G-I-T-H-U-B. Yep. Go on there, you can copy a, a code, put the code in, and it will change the colour for you. It's very simple. I'm not much of a techie, and I could do it, so... Oh, brilliant. Perfect. Yeah, because I loved... I was very... um. I don't know, there's something very soothing about mm. that, actually, to me, which I like that in my writing. I like having a platform that I feel is uh, soothing. I don't yeah. want to be distracted. They're very neutral colors. Mm. Oh, wow, that that was huge. Thank you. Well, and if, listen, when people are good at writing, and uh, I've, I've always found it's very difficult to get things out of the mind onto paper, but when you've already got the things on the paper that you've stored in the mind previously, you can then just tap back into where you've been in the past because I always find it very difficult to get stuff out. But when it's already out, you're just revisiting again. It's a lot easier, of course. You know, this, what you just said made me um, think of something that uh, you, people have said to me that, you know, I'm a member of a white-collar support group, and if we don't have any, we meet every Monday night. If we don't have somebody who's running the meeting or has a topic lead, the, the guy who founded it will say, Craig, can you speak tonight? I said, you know, we're starting the meeting in 30 seconds, and he'll say every single time, you can create an entire topic and 10 minute speech in 30 seconds. And you know why? It's because of what you just said. It's taking all of that out of the brain and putting it onto paper. Mm. Now that I've done that and I've done it numerous times, I always have something I can go to. I don't have to sort through and try to come up with a topic idea. I think that's also such a brilliant thing about writing is mm. that it allows us to alchemize and crystallize our thoughts in a way that we can um, verbalize them in a much more powerful way. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people have the idea that the mind is a storage container. You're better off not having the mind as a storage container, of receiving information, aka a book or something, rewriting either a paragraph or, or make notes on something in your own words so that you start to understand it rather than just repeat. And then get it out and tag it and then you don't even have to worry about it anymore. You've created it. Your brain is now on the computer. It's now on the app. You don't necessarily need to store it. But coincidentally, you actually learn more. You actually take in more. So although, sure. although you, I think it's like the same as anything, you know, when you don't need something, can you get more of it? Yes. It's just a natural universal pattern again. It's the same principle here. So I don't need to remember that. So guess what happens? You're remembering it. It's the same thing. So when you try and remember, I need to remember, I need to remember, you never remember. It's the same thing. Oh, yeah. this is, oh I, can't, I can't wait to you. I'm going to use, I'm going to start this. I'm loading it as soon as we're done. <laughs> I'm going to start using it tomorrow. Yeah. $120 or something is peanuts. Oh, it's nothing. Oh. There you go, man. I'm glad I could be of some use. You, every time we speak, you're, you've definitely given me, because you introduced me to, um, to Hawkins as well. So mm. I thank you for that. Letting oh, go, the art of surrender is, um, mm. I know you like, uh, I remember last time we spoke, Power Versus Force uh, was highly recommended by you. Mine is Letting Go, the art mm. of surrender. That one really, I finished it and I started reading it right over again because I realized mm. I missed a lot. And I just was like, I have to, I have to immerse myself in this. Yeah, yeah. One of the best book, bits of that book, in my opinion, was when he went through a massive list of things that people do when they, they're in like the um, personal development stage of their life. Like, and it's, he lists like a thousand things and you're just reading it going, oh, shit, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, I've done them all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's right, it's right towards the beginning of the book. Yeah. <laughs> he goes through that absolutely. And same thing. I'm reading it going guilty. Don't yeah. up to that one. <laughs> Maybe I'm still doing that one. <laughs> yeah. Excellent man. But he was a great guy. I've had a bit of um trouble with his wife's organization recently because really? because i put an image of the map on a video i did i was talking through the map of consciousness and i put the video and a map on the video and talked over you know and they said it was copyright and i've had a bit of an issue that that should be copyrighted i don't think it should be and you know we've had a bit of back and forth but you know what it's that it's the nature of the work and the essence of the work that's important so um uh, in my opinion that's one of the greatest bodies of work that mankind has got access to right now we need it more than ever when everyone's at loggerheads absolutely uh, absolutely so, well it's to your point before the greens and the oranges just to you know not to mm-hmm. put people in boxes but in a sense but just to really understand you know i'm going to rewind for a second if you don't mind the that perspective we were talking about that has been, in a sense, gifted to you from ayahuasca. I think that this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that plays a huge part in your ability to um, look outside, to step outside the map and to look down on the, the map and see, and to have that empathy and to say, I understand why you're thinking like this. I understand why you're thinking like this. Mm. And I can understand why you are, you know, battling. Yeah. You know, I think, do you think that the, ayahuasca and your multiple journeys on that has opened up that ability even further it certainly helps i mean is it is it because of the ayahuasca that that is uh, that that is how i sort of function or is it because i function that way that i went on ayahuasca so i don't know chicken or the egg yes go back at that point again and i'm happy to not know that you know but but it certainly doesn't do any harm Oh, I can't imagine. Right. I can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do know people who have gone there to places like ayahuasca and certain other type of psychedelics and that they have actually come back probably more troubled than when they went. Not in the sense that they couldn't, they can't make sense of their experience. They've never been in so much pain and had that much bliss in one evening and therefore cannot conceptualize that happening so I've, I've seen people end up not not like uh, they end up in the state of psychosis not like that but in the sense that they 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 have no they have less clarity coming out of the 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 ayahuasca retreat than they did when they first went in probably not a benefit to go there so i've seen that but as a general rule of thumb I, i've never seen any negative effects of it particularly if you do around the right people and people who've trained with the natives not just picked it up as a as a hobby well i think i think that's something that is you know with my limited knowledge of what i've read there's a lot of communities out there that do it as a hobby and not as the not leveraging it as the technology that it is and in a sense not giving it the respect that it deserves and there it is again i mean you look at weed that's another one about respect. There's a lot of research out there now to, now to suggest that cannabis is a, a master plant, an intelligent plant that can really have great benefits for people. 
But the majority of people who use cannabis are not using it like that. They're, they're abusing cannabis. So you can't, you know, it's very difficult for people to say, you know, cannabis is great and this, that, the other. But if you're smoking a joint every couple of hours, you're not getting a benefit from that. The spirit is consuming you. Yeah. And this is the same with ayahuasca. I think there are a lot of, um, you know, it's a whole different conversation. There's a whole lot of underlying issues. I think if you're smoking a joint every few hours, it's just, a, you know, that level of escape, you know, one thing that comes to mind is uh, what we've been talking about, that reality is, mm. and not embracing it, not accepting it and, and trying to fight it and leave it. Yeah, certainly. And, and uh, that we, we seem to not have a reverence for nature anymore. But that our home is our home. We can't get away from it. And now we try and control it. But nature holds the answers and the keys for all of wisdom. All knowledge, all wisdom is in nature. We just need to return to the natural world. And if we're smoking a hell of a lot of pot, yeah, there's a huge amount of escapism. But a lot of that is, again, from the, the removal of man from the natural world. We need to start treating her, if you like, treating her better. And a lot of these problems that we have, a lot of these addiction issues that we have, will, fall, will they fall away? So we're not meant to be sitting in a box for 30 years. We're not meant to be. We're not. It's not how we're wired. No. We're tribal creatures who moved around, migrating to to find food. We're used to moving around. Yeah. Not to be in a, uh, you know, quite frankly, a prison cell in a corporate structure of a cubicle, you know, a 10 by 10 cubicle with your five foot high walls. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and blue lights and you're in clothes that are too, you know, uh, they're not organic cotton and everything. And it's like, okay, what, at what point does humanity need to get to until we realize that a lot of the problems that we're seeing is purely down to ourselves and our lack of appreciation for life and nature and, and all these things. But again, this isn't a preachy thing. This is a deep understanding of, right, I'm, I'm trying to grasp where humanity is at. I understand why you're thinking like this. I understand why you're acting like this. How can we then create a more, how can we, can we create space for this person to invite them to our say, take a look for yourself. I'm not saying I know any better, but please just take a step back and have a look at how magnificent this thing is because we've just lost it all. We really have. And it's, it's very sad. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible how this is, how it's happened. I know from just looking at you, like your Instagram, you're a huge fan of nature. You're outside all the time. So am I. And I think that connection with nature is so critically important to, mm. to get outside, to connect with it, to be with her, if we were, you know, to use that. Mm. And nature, if you brought, you're into your words and your language, nature originated from Gaelic and it was uh, N-A-T-T-I-R, I believe, which is where we get Tara from the name, T-I-R, Tara, T-A-R. Nature means the truth. That's, I did. Wow. You know what? I mean, I'm sitting here talking about my love of words and I did not know that. Well, there you that go. Yeah. Me, that's, oh, wow. I'm going to, I'm going to look into that. And we have, we have 
tree. If you ch change the first E for a U, what do you get? True. 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 That's See, it's, a, it's all it's all done. It's all there. So. Excuse me, I had to I had to leave my podcast studio for a second. That's okay, man. No problem. Uh, we've been on for about an hour and a half now, buddy. Is there anything you like to promote, uh, share with people? Well, I would I would be honored if people checked out Blank Canvas, how I reinvented my life after prison. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it six years of of work, um, and I really, you know, I. I I think I really was able to capture what it's like to be arrested, to hit rock bottom, and how to come out of that. So I'd be mm -hmm. honored if people check that out. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn every day, uh, Craig Stanland, and also Instagram, Craig underscore Stanland. I'll make sure to put those notes in, buddy. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you again, man. I could have kept going. We totally could, absolutely. Um, it's always a pleasure. And like I said, I really want to acknowledge you for the work that you do and that you put out there. I really enjoy your content. And it um, I'll tell you, some of it challenges me in a very positive way. And I, I, I love that. I really love looking at it. You give me a different perspective. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that with me. Uh, that's, that's what, I, as you said, if I can help one person, and that's the same same way as what I like to do as well. So, Craig Stanton, thank you for joining me again. Appreciate Alex, it. Alex, thank you. All the best, buddy. You too. Bye-bye.